In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Cami here. Today on Money Tales, Sandy and I talk with Sabrine Khan. Sabrine is one of those inspirational young powerhouses who finds a problem and solves for it. As you'll hear, when she started working, she realized she didn't have the personal investment chops that she felt she needed to make good decisions for herself. While she has a close-knit family to lean on, Sabrine saw that many young women were in the same boat as her. So she and her sister-in-law, Rabia Ather, created Her Capital, a nonprofit that helps educate young women on how to be confident investors. This is Sandy. You should know that Zabrine grew up in Lahore, Pakistan. While she always knew that she'd move to the U.S., her move occurred sooner than expected to distance her from the political situation developing in Pakistan at that time. Zabrine attended boarding school in the U.S. and then went on to Stanford. She currently works at a venture capital and growth equity firm in New York City. Zabrine was a speaker for the 2015 TEDx Women's Movement and continues to be involved in female-focused organizations. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. Now, on to our interview with Zabrine Khan. Zabrine Khan, welcome to Money Tales. We're so excited that you're here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to start talking money. Awesome. So to get us started, Zabrine, will you tell us a little bit about the journey of your life, focusing on two to three pivotal moments that make you the person that you are today? Of course. What I'd like to start with is actually where I was born and how I was raised, which I think is very different from most people that grow up in the U.S. So I was born and raised in Lahore, Pakistan, and I was the 11th grandchild out of 12, and all of us lived together. And so in my house growing up, it was my dad, his three brothers, all of my aunts, my grandmother, and then my siblings and all of my cousins. So it was 12 kids. I was the 11th, as I said, so there was only one after me. And I think that was not pivotal in terms of a pivotal you know, life change, but it really molded and shaped how I was raised and who I ended up being. You know, there was always a ton of support in our household. It's funny, during our birthdays, we would invite friends, but you didn't really need to because there were so many kids already at home. And so that was exciting. And I think all of the holidays and little celebrations and milestones that you have within your immediate family, it was amplified because I lived with my extended family. So I think that was a major pillar of my life. And then probably a pivotal moment that was more unexpected was my move to the U.S. So I always knew that I would move to the U.S., most likely for college or once I was into early adulthood. But back when I was in middle school in the 2005 to 2008 timeframe, 
Um, things in Pakistan were progressively getting worse, the security situation, the political situation. Thankfully, things are a lot better now. But back then, there was a lot of turmoil. And particularly in me going to school at an international school, it was often a place that would receive threats. And, and just generally, it wasn't the best security climate for a child to grow up in. And so my parents and I had to make the difficult decision to start looking at schools abroad. And given both of my parents worked in Pakistan, you know, they were open to potentially moving with me, but I also looked at boarding schools. And so I initially moved to the U.S. at the age of 13. And as I mentioned, it was super unexpected. So that was a tough transition for me. You know, I moved much earlier than I thought I would. I was so far away from home at such a young age. And I think that was a pivotal moment in my life because it forced me to be much more independent at a much younger age. And I think it made it harder that I grew up with such a huge house full of people because I was saying goodbye to, to so many more people when I took that leap and moved 8,000 miles away. And so I think that was definitely a, a point in my life that I still look back at. I'm glad I did it because it helped me become the person that I am today. It gave me a lot of resilience and independence and confidence. But going through it those first couple of months, that first year, I think was really, really difficult for a 13-year-old kid. Wow. Unimaginable. Did anybody else in your family come with you? Any other cousins or siblings? Yeah. So because I'm, I'm on the younger side of all of my cousins, some of my older cousins and my older sister were already in the US. My sister was in California and I was in New Hampshire. So it was very difficult for her to travel back and forth, but she made the effort and visited me several times. By the time I was a sophomore, I had more of my family, more of my cousins, as well as my brother in the Boston area. And so that was much closer to my school and, and that made life a lot easier. So I think the first year was really the toughest and then uh, it incrementally got better. My mom jokes because she was literally on a plane that entire first year, just going back and forth for various reasons. Either I got sick and they called her in and she's not driving four hours. She's taking a plane that takes her 24 hours to, to get to where I was. So she accumulated a lot of airline miles. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So Sabrina, tell us a little bit more about growing up in Pakistan in this large family. What was that like? How big was this home or was it more than a home? Yeah. So we were all living under one roof. Sometimes when people hear that I lived with 20 others, so 21, including myself, they often think maybe it's a compound, maybe it's a street. And you know, all of the houses were spread around that street, but it actually really, we lived in one large home. Very soon after I was born, I was under the age of one when we moved within the city of Lahore. So initially we were in a much smaller space. And then as more of us were born and the kids were getting older, we just outgrew that space. It was too small for everyone. I don't remember the original house that I was born in, but my older siblings and my older cousins tell me that multiple of us were, were sharing rooms and it was like much cozier than the house we ended up graduating to. But once we moved when I was under the age of one, we've lived in that house ever since. And so all of my memories, everything associated with my life back in Lahore is with that home. And it's, it has a very special place in my heart. Of course, it changed. Like when I look back at childhood movies, the garden is bare, there are no trees. And when you look at it now, you know, we've been there for 23 years, 24 years. And so it looks a little bit different than it did back then. But if I were to pick a, a place that's very close to my heart, it would be that home for sure. Mm, sounds wonderful. Tell us, Sabrine, about 
your parents, you said that they work. Were all the adults working? Was a professional conversation part of your upbringing, you know, work and making money and what that means to the family? Yeah, of course. So both of my parents work and both of them are entrepreneurs. So they started their own businesses while I was growing up. So my whole life I was raised with the mentality and you know this is a phrase that's used so frequently but I was always told that money doesn't grow on trees. And while we were always very comfortable, I never remember having issues with money. My parents supported me when I went to school. I was very happy and, and a comfortable child. It never felt like money was tight and I'm so grateful for that. But I was always taught that after a certain point after my education, I won't have that support anymore. And so I need to work hard and be able to support myself and the lifestyle that as I grew up, I was lucky enough to have because my parents were able to support me. I think my dad did a really, really good job of instilling that in each of his three kids. And so I knew that by the time I graduate from college, I will be supporting myself. And for that reason, I think during college, especially with summer internships and different work that I did, I always knew in the back of my mind that the career path that I choose and what I end up doing, I want to be able to make enough money to live a certain type of lifestyle, be comfortable, be happy. And so that's kind of the mentality that I was raised with. And Zabreen, will you tell us what it was like when you came to the United States, especially from a money perspective? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the most eye-opening things about moving to the United States was one, how expensive an education in the United States is, and two, how expensive airfare is. You never really think about that, but when I had to make trips back home, whether it was for Thanksgiving or winter or spring or summer, all of that money adds up and it's, it's, it's very expensive just to put a number on it, even just for a, a regular fare seat, it costs $1,200 to $1,400 just to get home. And that's if you plan ahead and are booking three months in advance and getting a regular economy seat. And so that really adds up. And then secondly, tuition is insanely expensive. I went to boarding school and then I went to a private college and it's a lot of money. So I think that was very eye-opening to me thinking at some point I'm going to have kids and I'm likely going to send them to school in the U.S. if I'm still here. And that's a huge sum of money. So things like saving for a college fund for my children became very apparent when I moved here. And then second, my parents live and work in Pakistan. And so they earn their money in Pakistani rupees. And the exchange rate is not very favorable, unfortunately. So that's that was another eye-opening experience of you know, the things that maybe we were used to in Pakistan cost a lot less. And if you try to purchase those same things or do those same things in the United States, it's much, much, much more expensive. And so I think those are probably the key lessons that I learned when I moved to the U.S. And were you responsible for tracking these things and booking flights? Or were you really relying on your parents to help guide you through some of these cost factors? Yeah, in high school, I was definitely very reliant on my parents in tracking and budgeting. There was so much emotionally that was taking a toll on me at the time. I don't think I could have managed thinking about money. And I'm lucky that my parents just handled that themselves. Once I started college and started earning myself through work that I was doing while in school or through summer internships, and then saving that money as I started thinking about wanting to move to New York and renting my own place. That's when I really started budgeting and thinking about saving and managing my finances more day to day. Along those lines, Sabrine, when did money start having meaning to you? 
Was it when you were young? Are you this natural, born with these entrepreneurial parents? Did it have meaning at a young age? Was it a certain event, something you purchased? I think really it was the conversations that I had with my parents. Both of them came from upper middle class backgrounds and they ultimately ended up starting their own businesses and and learning about money along the way. And I think they learned lessons that they wanted to pass down to their children. Both of my parents actually came from army backgrounds. So both of my grandfathers were in the army. And that's a very different lifestyle than someone who's in business and someone who is an entrepreneur starting their own company, which is what my parents ended up doing. And so there were a lot of learnings for them, you know, in that transition from being military families to being families in business. And so I've learned a ton from their experiences. And when my dad was, you know, when he came to Canada and that's where he was educated, I think that's when he first learned about money. And so he really wanted to teach his kids before they went abroad Uh, the different lessons he learned, how he gained those entrepreneurial skills to be conscious of money. But we were never ashamed to want to make money. And I think that's something that in some communities is looked down upon. And sometimes I feel bad if I'm saying I want that job because I know that it's going to pay well. But the reality is money makes life a lot easier. I think it also makes things more complicated in some instances, but I at least want to have the comfort to be able to travel, to go home and see my family to be able to, like I said, send my kids to college and a whole plethora of reasons. And so in my family, we're taught not to feel ashamed to want a high paying job or to want to start a company that would enable us to make more money. And some people might think of that as selfish or or too money focused. But honestly, I think I'm glad I was raised that way because it is a reality that I think sometimes as a kid, you're not privy to. And I'm just curious, Sabrina, all these lessons that your father was teaching you, you were living so far away from him for much of a critical part of your life. How is he teaching these things to you? You know, my family, we've always been very tight knit and the love and the bond that we have, even while I was far away, was very much there. I'm grateful that modern day technology enabled me to be in touch with my family very often, whether it was through Skype and now through FaceTime and WhatsApp. And especially during those younger years, my parents made a lot of effort to either come and visit me in the U.S. or enable me to go home. And so I was really lucky that even though I was living so far away from home, they made an effort and bit the bullet on the cost to help me go home and and be close to family and still have memories of my childhood home, even while I was away at boarding school, uh, just through those frequent trips. And I think that bond has continued on even into our adult life. And so we, we always remain very close. We talk on the phone for hours. We have a, a WhatsApp group chat that's always buzzing. So I think there are many moments where both my parents are able to share their lessons and, and wisdom with us. Hey, Zareen, how did your family get comfortable, not have everyone feel unashamed to pursue money, to talk about money? to just make it a fact of life? Were there certain things your parents did? I think it came over time and particularly as each of us got older and came closer to having to support ourselves. I think money conversations happen more frequently. And especially because I'm on the younger end of all of my cousins and even my siblings, I kind of knew what to expect. So I understood how long my parents would be supporting me and what would happen after that. And I think in terms of having the conversations, I think as we were getting older and money conversations would be happening oftentimes amongst the adults, 
But as we got older, our uncles, our aunts, my parents became comfortable with just letting us be in the room, even if it was a conversation that maybe was intended for adults. But at least we were able to listen and soak in that information. And I think even just from being in the room, because all of us were in communal spaces in the house so often, and money was being talked about, whether it was about businesses or it was the family expenses, we were never asked to leave the room because it was an adult conversation. And I think that really helped because we were, even if we didn't know what was going on when we were 10 years old, by the time we're 13, 14, we started to understand things. We started to understand how are they talking about money? What are the things that they do to not argue about money or fight about money. That was another thing that my parents taught me about a lot was as we get older, even as siblings, sometimes it's easy for siblings to fight about money. And I was always taught that we're going to be a united front. The three of us, me, my brother, and my sister are always going to look out for each other and money is never going to get in the way. Because I think my parents had seen that happen either through extended family or, or in other parts of their cities or, or communities or society. And they didn't want that to happen in our extended family. And then for each of those families, they wanted us to learn those lessons. And so I've always been taught that my, my siblings and my cousins are the closest people in the world to me and money is never going to get in the way. But instead, we're all one unit. And I think that was a really important lesson. I'm really impressed and bringing you into those conversations. I think that's role model behavior. I'm thinking through this communal living where you're sharing presumably everything with not only your siblings and your parents, but the extended family as well. Do you think that helped make the money conversations even easier? Because you already knew what it was like to share non-money resources with each other? Honestly, I think the credit really goes to my grandmother and, and my dad and his three brothers because they kind of set the tone of this is how we're going to live. Everyone's going to be under one house and everything is shared. And to, to many people, when I talk about that right now, that is mind boggling. It's like, how can so many people share an income, share all of their expenses? I'm really proud. And now that I'm older, so impressed that they were able to do that. It's, it's no easy feat. And being raised in that, I was raised to think that was normal. And so I'm, I'm glad because now when I read about this or watch how money can really affect families and tear people apart, I'm even more impressed at how they were able to do that. Even now, I think you just have to keep your ego in check. You have to put the person first and realize this is your brother, this is your mother, whoever it is. And your relationship comes before any conflict that money could cause. And I think what they do really well is they communicate with each other. They're open with each other. They're transparent with each other. And they're not, you know, they, they give each other feedback and are open to talking about these things, but I think they always put the family bond above any conflict. That's what's critical, and hopefully that's what I want to do as, as I get older, and you know, that's how I want to build a family as well. Do you mind if we now pivot to your years in college and then post-college, how money's played a part of your life and how you've experienced money while you were in college and outside of college and the drive you've had with your business and your professional life? Of course, yeah. So when I was in college, that was the first time I started earning an income myself. And it was really, really empowering. I was excited when I would get a direct deposit or I would get a check and I would feel excited that I can now buy my parents a gift and it's not their money. 
I can take someone out to lunch or dinner. I can save up for an item that I'm really looking forward to and and also just generally save for when I know my parents will no longer be able to support me. And so I think the key word I would associate with first with my first few months of earning an income was that independence and that empowerment. And I think that's something that stuck with me. And so I any chance that I got, whether it was to work part time while I was at Stanford, or whether it was to spend three months over the summer working, I knew that I really wanted to do that, even though my parents were supporting me in college. I knew that I wanted to save, I knew that this experience would be invaluable once I graduate. So I was very happy to have made those decisions. And I was very excited that I was making my own money. And then upon graduating, I went and worked at Facebook, which is a big tech company. And so even outside of just your salary, you realize that an employer can also give you so many other benefits, particularly an employer like Facebook, which is known to have so many perks. And so that was really interesting to me as well, because as I planned my life in New York, this was the first time where I was figuring out health insurance and what are the types of expenses that my employer is going to cover and I remember having long conversations with my older siblings and with my parents and having a Google Drive folder with all of my expenses and, and just spreadsheets that I would use to track being independent for the first time. I think it's very difficult to stay consistent with that. And I learned over time that I really want to know where my money is going and how I'm spending it. Because initially, when you first start earning that income and are fully supporting yourself, I think a lot of things are tricky and a lot of things were new, particularly being in a big and very expensive city like New York. Those were all lessons that were very important my first year out of school. Another, I think, pivotal moment was once I left Facebook after working there for a year, I moved into the venture capital and, and growth equity industry. And so then moving into finance, I think I gained a whole new understanding of money just by being in the financial world, you know, money being a major part of my day-to-day -day job because we're investing in growing technology companies, actually looking at spreadsheets of other businesses, understanding the different line items in a P&L, things that I had never done before. And so that also contributed to my understanding of money, less from a, from a personal sense, but more from a professional sense. And I think down the line, I do aspire to start my own company. And so getting that experience was very, very important. What I loved is the Google Drive and tracking your expenses. So you've been very mindful about the inflows and the outflows and discipline. To be honest, I wasn't very good at it that first year. It's very difficult to keep track of, of all of these files and folders and spreadsheets. But I think the thing that makes it all easier is now there are so many apps out there that help you with personal money management. And so becoming a member and, and signing up for things like Mint, which allow me to see how much of my income is going to rent and, and household expenses versus eating out and dinners that I do in New York versus all the other things. I think that was very useful. After my first six months in New York, when I realized it's very hard to manually track everything that I was spending, I downloaded Mint and then just Getting to see a very pretty pie chart of where all my money is going was amazing. And then I could make better decisions at the start of every year of, okay, I'm spending too much on this, or I want to spend more here, I want to save more here. And then I think one of the most important lessons I learned, and this is once I had made the pivot from Facebook into VC, was that I started investing. And I wish, I so wish I had started investing earlier. 
I think as women, we tend to be much slower at biting the bullet and we wait to say maybe once I'm 30 or once I hit this career milestone or once I get promoted and I have enough savings. But I was really missing out and I wish I had started investing from the day I had my first part-time job or my first internship because all of those years, hopefully that investment would have grown and compounded. And so that was a major lesson that I learned once I started investing professionally and being in such a male dominated industry, I would hear hallway talk as, as my male colleagues were coming out of meetings or going to the bathroom of the different stocks they invested in and their portfolio. And I felt so behind. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this professionally and I don't know a thing about personal investing. And so that's when I really started educating myself and trying to learn from people that were older than me. Again, I think my siblings were very helpful because they had started doing this themselves. And being younger, I think you get to lean on your older siblings quite a bit. I definitely have. And so they taught me a thing or two about personal investing. And actually, one of the projects that, ver- that is very near and dear to my heart stemmed out of this issue that I was seeing that as a woman in finance, I myself did not know how to invest personally. And so, so many other women who maybe are in different industries, whether they're teachers or doctors or lawyers or in entertainment or fashion, if someone in finance doesn't know about the world of investing, how would someone in one of those industries? I was continuously getting questions from my female friends of, you know, you work in finance, what should I be doing with my 401k? Should I do a 401k or an IRA? How should I invest? Are stocks too risky? And so I realized that women are, are very, I think, behind in those conversations. And we are, I think, as a society have conditioned women to think that maybe money conversations aren't appropriate. And so me and my sister-in-law, actually, we were talking about this one day at dinner in New York. She also works in finance and, and she's a couple years older than me. And she was having the same experience of realizing that her female friends and her female colleagues are not necessarily at the same stage as her male friends and colleagues when it comes to investing in personal finance. And so we actually decided to launch a nonprofit that targeted female financial education. Uh, It's called Her Capital. It's something we've been working on for just about a year now. And we've learned so much through it and are so excited about the community of women that are interested in this and I think just feel like the resources don't exist that are specifically targeted to them. And so being able to bring that space and build that community and provide those resources for free has been an incredible experience. And I've learned so much along the way from the women that I've met and from the questions that other women have asked. So I'm so glad that that conversation is starting to happen in in many of my circles now, more so than say five years ago. It's really exciting and congratulations on putting her capital together. Looking back over the last year since it's been in place, what's most surprised you from your experience building that nonprofit? What surprised me? I would say two things. So one, when, when I first started looking into the statistics, you see these big scary numbers like over 70% of women's assets are left in cash or on average women invest 40% less than men. But I think the statistics that are less publicized are that women's portfolios actually tend to outperform men. And so I think the first study I read about this was in BlackRock and just seeing how women actually tend to be better investors once they're educated about investing. Uh, That was very fascinating to me. And I think further drove home the point that it's really an education issue and an access issue, less so about a woman's ability 
Uh, I think women are more than capable and more than able, but are not necessarily being given the resources or being armed with the information to kind of take those initial steps. So I think that was one thing that was surprising because from the outside looking in, you'd think men would be better investors because so many more of them do it. Uh, but I think whatever it is about women, whether we are smarter about our decisions, smarter about our money, something allows us to be better investors. That was surprising. And then second, women actually ask such thoughtful questions about personal finance, even if they are very much in the early stages of exploring the concept. And I think another that's interesting is when we launched Her Capital, we launched it as a, a New York-based organization, and a lot of our content is U.S.-focused. But given both my co-founder, Rabia, and I are from Lahore, Pakistan, initially a lot of the traction we were getting was from international. So a, a ton of people from South Asia, and then also people from Western countries outside of the U.S., like Canada, Australia, the U.K. And it was interesting to see that while certain questions are very similar as it relates to investing in stocks and what's the earliest that I can start investing, different things like that, then there were other questions that were very specific to, I think, certain demographics or certain regions. Like one, uh, one thing I found fascinating was so many Pakistani women would ask us how to invest in gold because in Pakistan, gold jewelry is one of the most expensive items that women own and women are handed down as they get older and as they get married. And so gold kind of holds this allure that, you know, it's one of the, the most important things in society. And usually a woman in a woman's assets that are physical, a lot of what they own is in gold. And so that was really, really interesting to me. So many of these women were wanted to understand how to invest in gold and what that looks like. And so we started building content around that. And so some of these conversations, I think, from a baseline start in, in the same place, but ultimately you start also understanding different nuances about the society and the demographic as you go deeper into those conversations. And I think that gold example is definitely one of the more eye-opening ones. Yeah, that's fascinating. Where do you want to take her capital? Is this your entrepreneurial endeavor or is there something else out there that you want to go for? So Her Capital is a nonprofit and a 501c3, and I think we always want to be able to provide those free educational resources because this problem is really important to us, and we want to be able to help as many women as possible. And oftentimes, you know, the women that we are targeting, we're trying to target women as early as possible. And so most of the women in our target audience and the women of the Her Capital community tend to be between the ages of 18 and 35. And so it's really important that these resources are provided for free because oftentimes they're either students or they're trying to make ends meet with their first job. And so we want to make sure it is and will always be free. Um, that being said, I think this has very much allowed me to exercise those entrepreneurial muscles that I've always wanted to and have a project outside of work that I get really excited about and want to spend hours working on. And so I, I think a couple of years from now, there are so many different directions it could go in and down the line, potentially, you know, Rabia and I have discussed launching a, a sister company or, or something alongside her capital that maybe would have a slightly different mission, but would still be around the aim of helping women and about female financial wellness. So we'll see where it goes. But I think even just what we're doing right now, there's so much more we want to do and so many more women we want to reach. So I think launching something alongside it is more of a five-year goal as opposed to a near-term goal. You talked about 
in your family having money conversations, which is, we applaud. Do you have money conversations with your friends? That's a very good question. So I think this was another reason why I wanted to start Her Capital was because I wasn't having many money conversations with my friends. Here and there, I would get questions from my closest friends who trusted me and would talk to me about anything. And so money was not off the table. They would be the ones asking me and, and asking questions about stocks or you know their salary or negotiating the salary or their rent being too high and having to move to a different place or different conversations like that, I would say maybe happened with two or three of my closest friends. And I realized that beyond that, we aren't necessarily having conversations about money. And even within those smaller group, very tight knit circles, money can be awkward to talk about. So I think it's much more comfortable for me even now to talk about money with my family because it was normalized at such a young age than it is to talk about money with my friends. And I think it's something that I really would like to change and particularly amongst groups of women because I think we can only help each other when it comes to being more open about how much we're getting paid or a tactic that we used in our meeting with our boss to get a pay raise or whatever else it might be. And so hopefully if I start to do that with my friends and they start to do it with their other friends, it'll trickle down. But I think it's far easier for me to have conversations about money with my family than it is with even my closest friends. I think that's an interesting observation and we applaud the idea of continuing to try to have conversations with more of your friends and opening that up because we agree that that trickle down effect is so, so important. And that leads me to another question, Zabreen, which is just around having a healthy relationship with money. So obviously with everything you're doing in your personal life and with her capital, personal financial education is something that's really important and that you value a lot. But when you think holistically about money, how would you define having a healthy relationship with money? And who are the people in your life that you see having healthy relationships with money? I think having a healthy relationship with money for me means one, being okay with talking about it. Two, being okay with wanting money. I think money is so often stigmatized in our society that the people who earn a lot of money or want high paying jobs, sometimes we look down upon them because it's, it's thought of as greedy or selfish. But I think if that's important to you and you want to be comfortable from a financial perspective, more power to you. So, you know, being okay with wanting to make more money and not looking down upon that. And then also realizing that, you know, it's a double-edged sword and money is not the end-all be-all. And at the end of the day, I think there are so many other things that are going to bring you happiness. And I think we were talking about this earlier in our conversation, but while money conversations were were frequent in my family, we never let it get in the way of personal relationships. And so I hope to always bring that ethos into my relationships. And whether it's with my friends, or whether it's with my future spouse, or, or whomever, that money is going to be a topic of conversation, but we're always going to hold our relationships above that. And relationships will be more important than any conflict that would arise when it comes to money. So I, I think those are three very important aspects of having a healthy relationship with money. Who would you say embodies all three? Do you have anybody in your life who is your money mentor? I think my dad, for sure. I think trickles of that came out in this conversation as well, but I've learned a lot about money from him and just how to have a good relationship with it, be okay with having it, do good with it as well. You know, if you're making money, 
it's not all about you and treating yourself. It's also about giving to family and also giving to those less fortunate than you. And so I think that's actually a topic that we didn't spend as much time on yet. But I was always raised with the mentality of earning, but also giving back. And I think both of my parents, my mom, especially as she's gotten older, such a big part of her life is charity, both in the forms of monetary value, but also in the form of time and figuring out what are the problems around her and her communities and where we live, particularly in Pakistan, and how can she help? And so I think being able to give back has has also been another huge pillar in my life. And even when I first came out of school and maybe wasn't earning as much as I am now four years later, I still wanted to give a portion of that income back to the the causes that mattered to me and, and to the places that mattered to me. Every year I try to pick certain charities or certain types of organizations or certain work that I would like to do that year that has the theme of giving back. And that's been another important aspect of my life as well. Sabrina, as a young woman, you have accomplished so much with your life already. What are you most looking forward to doing next that you haven't done yet? So I think in terms of money, more in the near term, one of the things I'm most excited about, and this is in tandem with my work with Her Capital, but we're actually launching a series that brings together groups of five women. They may or may not know each other. Most of them will not, but we're all going to get on a Zoom and we're going to talk about money. And so I think doing that and getting comfortable doing that, even with strangers, hopefully I can then start doing that in my own community. And hopefully everyone in the Her Capital community learns a thing or two from those Zoom sessions and then can take it back to the people that they see physically or or more day to day and feel comfortable talking about money. So in the near term, that's something I'm really looking forward to and something I'm not used to doing. So I think it will be scary at first, but I'm, I'm excited to try to normalize and feel comfortable talking about money. And maybe it'll be easier with strangers. We'll see. But that's something in the near term I'm excited about. And then I think an aspect of money that I haven't yet had much experience with is thinking about talking about and planning, you know, as it relates to money with a spouse. And so just seeing my my older siblings get married and start thinking about buying homes and thinking about savings and thinking about their collective income. I think that's going to be a very pivotal experience for me as well. And so hopefully, as the youngest child always does, I can learn the tips and tricks and not make the mistakes that they made and hopefully do that once I also get married. And then I'm not just thinking about myself, but I'm thinking about a partner and then eventually a family. Any plans for a communal home among your siblings, your parents? I would love to. Honestly, it's always been on my mind and always something that I aspire to do. Right now, we're all in such different parts of the world physically. It seems hard, but where there's a will, there's a way. And and maybe sometime down the line, we can all agree on on a spot where at least we spend part of the year. That would be nice. That'd be wonderful. If money were no object, what would you most like to do? If money were no object, I think I would spend a lot more of my time traveling. I've tried to do that as much as possible, but when you're working and you have so many other responsibilities and you're trying to make money and earn money, it's often hard to go out and do those other things like explore the world, which is also very costly. And so I think learning about new cultures, visiting new places, eating new kinds of food is what I derive a lot of happiness and joy from. And so if if money were no object, I think I would spend a lot more time just traveling to new places. So Zabrine, can you tell us who is your next money conversation going to be with and what's it going to be about? 
my next money conversation will likely be with my sister because she is the stock picking guru. And so I often get a lot of advice about stocks from her. And so maybe once a month, sometimes even once every two weeks, I try to ping her and have a conversation about the different stocks I'm seeing, the different stocks she's seeing. And I think I learn a lot from those conversations because it helps me become a better investor with my personal portfolio. Her advice has not led me astray to date and, and hopefully it, it won't. And so I really trust her with the advice that she gives me about her own personal portfolio and try to translate that into what I'm doing with mine as well. So I think that's probably the next conversation I'll be having about money. Sounds like a good one to bring. Good luck with that. And thank you so much for being our guest on Money Tales. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. This was lovely. And I'm so glad you guys are, are talking about money and making it more normal. Thank you, Sabrine. Cammy, that was such a great conversation we had with Sabrine. Oh, gosh. She shared so many fun facts, yet she's not that old. <laughs> it's amazing. First and foremost, 11th of 12 grandkids and three generations all living together. That was really inconceivable for me. When she was telling us about that, all I kept thinking about was what it would have maybe felt like if my family was in that situation. I was thinking about my aunts and uncles and all of us together. I, I, it was hard to imagine, but I think, I think it sounds so cool. I think it sounds amazing. Sandy, I come from a, a very close-knit family with a lot of opinions, and we used to see each other a lot. I couldn't imagine all living together. <laughs> No, but one of the things that I thought was particularly cool that Sabrine shared was how her family, the adults of their family, were having money conversations right out in front of the kids and not just mom and dad talking, but all the adults and talking about decisions that impacted all of them. Isn't that amazing? I think about that gift they gave them by, by being so transparent. And it's no wonder that what sounds like a very successful family, they seem like they have great knowledge, great strength, they're smart, they're driven. And I think part of that is being part of these adult conversations at a young age. I still think, Cammy, that it's very cool that she and her sister-in-law, Rabia, has started her capital as a way to provide a solution for a problem that each of them faced as young women not knowing enough about investments and personal finance than they wish they did. Mm, it's impressive. And I think it's something that's really needed. And we know that from our own experience, from talking to clients, even personal experience. Do you want to share anything from your coming out of college? How are you feeling? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I remember I, I graduated school. I was part of a, a class of associates uh, working at a a public accounting firm. And we all started on the same day. We had orientation. And I remember the head of HR for the office coming in to talk to us about our 401k plan. And I knew enough to know that 401k plans were important and that I should contribute as much as I could to them. But I had no idea how to invest my 401k. And we had to make a decision right then and there. And this HR professional was basically saying, you should diversify and so basically, you should just spread your money around all the different choices on the page. <laughs> so that's what I did. I didn't know any better. And as I became curious about personal finance and investing and learned more, I just kept going back to that day thinking, oh my gosh, diversification is so important. <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think she really knew what she was 
when she said diversify your investments because there were some wacky things that were in my 401k that I later fixed. It feels like, you know, the, the spaghetti against the wall approach. So I had a cousin in the investment business and she kept talking to me how important compounding was. And her whole point was put money away, definitely contribute to your 401k and how important that is and how it can grow. I remember her showing me the tables and, you know, I, I'll be honest, like looking way out, 40 years old, I can't remember what, you know, what the table showed, but it's, I just wasn't thinking past four days from then. And in hindsight, I think that was in itself a little gift of how smart she was and even just exposing me to this notion of compounding. It obviously sunk in if I still remember that conversation. Yeah, it's such an important concept. And I wish, you know, that all these years later that there was more personal finance education available in the world. And it saddens me that uh, we're not there yet, but I'm appreciative for everything that Sabrina and Robbie are doing with her capital to help bring more women to the investment table and, and get people educated and, and ready to invest confidently. I really agree. I, I think that confidence is such an important thing. I, I'm hoping in the university and colleges and high school to start bringing some of these concepts so people do feel more confident when they get that first paycheck, when they start earning their money, that they know what to do with it besides just spend it. So, so important. I really want to just thank Zabrine one more time for being our guest today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I agree, Sandy. Keep up the great work, Zabrine. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.